Amen. Good morning. You might be surprised to see me a second week in a row. The elders decided that I would be the vessel in which you learned long-suffering as a fruit of the Spirit. So uh, I promise I won't be up here next week. Uh, But go ahead and turn with me to Titus 2. We're going to finish chapter 2 with verse 15, and then we will go uh, to 3-7 today. um, But while you're turning there, I'm going to give you a glimpse into my high school career. So I'll just set the stage for you. Uh, 10th grade, going into 11th grade, I uh, was uh, 200 pounds, or I was same weight, but I was 120 pounds, so, so like soaking wet. So I could tell football was not in my future. <laughs> um, so the Lord kind of opened some new doors for me as he shut those. And uh, so I decided, you know what, I'll get a job. And so I'm 16, and I started working at Chick-fil-A, and I worked there for about five years. And uh, stuff's changed a lot since I've been there, but um, when, I, when I first started working there, they were very strict as to what you could say and do when you had your uniform on, and especially your name tag. Jacob, I don't, you can confirm or deny this afterwards. But um, in fact, there were like training videos specifically for that. And like, if you're gonna do something, you need to like take your name tag off or something like that. Um, and, and so all of this was because they wanted to be represented well. So Chick-fil-A is an organization, they had kind of set a standard and they wanted to make sure that the people who wore their uniforms, wore their name tags, uh, kind of continued in that standard, represented them in the way that they wanted to be known. And, and we all kind of see that when we go there still, right? I mean, when, when you go there, it's different, you know. Um, and, and when I was working there, there would even be people who were like confused. Like, why are you nice to me? <laughs> you know, I, I, like I just got a drink this morning. Uh, we were going through the drive-thru and the person literally didn't even look at me. <laughs> like, they, like, they didn't speak to me, which is fine, but like they didn't even look at, like they just like had their arm out the window when we got there. And, but when we go to Chick-fil-A, it's like, we're not supposed to talk. Like, don't, don't ask me how my day is. Like, don't smile at me, right? And so, but what that is, is I think they're trying to create a culture that's different than the culture at large. And so this morning, I believe what Paul's giving us is kind of a responsibility for the church to represent the king well and stand out in a culture that looks very different. So let's go ahead and pick up. Again, we're going to be in 2.15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, I pray as as we take a few minutes and we try to pull out meaning from this text that you would give us clarity and vision. I pray, Lord, that I would decrease and you might increase through the words preached and that we all might sit under the preaching of this word and see your authority as good and as right and as true and guiding for our lives. 
Thank you for the worship and the catechisms and the prayers that have led us to this. Uh, let us now take this time and take advantage of the good gift of the congregation that we have. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name who brought us together. Amen. So, we return to Paul and we, uh, last week, if you remember, I said that we kind of were given a manual in Titus for what the church should be. And I think that that's going to be continually true as we, as we keep walking through Titus. So, for those of you here last week, this text probably seems kind of familiar. There's like this gospel presentation, and then there's this kind of like practical kind of side of things. And I think that that's for a purpose. So, uh, verses 11 through 14 serve as what we'll call the vertical reality of our salvation. We, we talked about how we've been, the work that Jesus did, the finished work of Christ, how we've been saved, and how that new reality of being in Christ changes us. Right? So, so the 11 through 14 as the vertical reality of our salvation. But this morning, as we head into verse 15, I believe that Paul's giving us now the horizontal reality of our relationship to Christ. How does that work itself out in our homes, in our church, and in the world at large? We'll primarily be talking about the world at the world, excuse me, at large. But uh, kind of view that as an umbrella term. I'm not excluding the church or the family, but also I don't want to keep you here all day by saying those every time. <laughs> so, by this, what I what I mean is that we're as Christians shown how we ought to live and interact in this world. Right. So Paul and and, and God is not kind of unaware that we're like left in this world to live and, and to worship him and to follow him. And that's difficult, right? We're not kind of whisked away to some secret Christian headquarters where we only live out our lives with other Christians and nor are we called to. That's been tried and it failed. But we're given a manual for how God's people go out into the world, how we go into the world that we've been saved out of. And I want you to remember the, uh, the kind of the process of, of reading these letters. They would not have necessarily been read like little chunks at a time, but they would have been read in their entirety to the church. And if you think about it, this kind of becomes like the next logical step, right? So we, we've seen uh, how a church is created, right, by the finished work of Christ. We talked about that in verses 11 through 14. We've been given the shape of the church, how we are to be a body called into this new reality, and now we're shown how this new people that God has created is to uh, live and act in the world. So, as we sojourn here as strangers, while now citizens of heaven, what does that look like? And, and I think that the gospel is going to teach us four things about, our, or, about this horizontal reality of our salvation. And we're going to go ahead and start with point number one. The gospel teaches us how to speak. The gospel teaches us how to speak. We're going to find that in verse 15. So Paul's been giving him kind of, Titus, some of these commands for how the church should be, how they should live, how they should understand themselves. And then he gives us this really strong kind of charge to Titus. He speaks with authority. And essentially what he's doing is reinforcing earlier comments that the elders should be able to teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. To be teaching and rebuking assumes a position of authority when we saw in chapter 1. And this authority means that Titus should allow no one to disregard him. Now this morning some of us might kind of bristle at that a little bit. Like what gives Titus the right to, to talk like that? To talk with such authority? And, and why does Paul have the ability to hand out this authority to those that he's commissioning? And those are good questions. Those are ones that we need to work through. And the answer to them both is the same. It's the message that they carry. 
we look back in the Great Commission at, of Matthew 28, we see Jesus saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the authority that we see in verse uh, in verse 1 here is the same authority that Jesus claims when he sends out the disciples in Matthew 28. This authority is derived, meaning that Paul and Titus don't have it of themselves. It's not Titus it's not for Titus because he has some good connections, right? He's got some ministry friends that can help him get in authority. It's not from Paul because he's a super apostle, but it's from the Lord Jesus Christ who has commissioned them to be heralds of his message. And here's where we're going to find a twofold application, I think, for the church today. And it's going to be broken up in, in what we'll see as the two audiences of the letter. So the, the first audience being Titus, right? and where the letter got his namesake. And when we look at this passage, we see something that many Christians and many churches have forsaken today. The spiritual authority of the elder. And let's be honest, we, we kind of get it, right? If we just look at the church, even in the past few years, we've seen an almost endless parade of men who have used their authority as a means for sexual or financial or selfish gain leaving a path of destruction in the churches that they wreck. So when we have that and then we couple it with this American skepticism of authority, what do we end up with? A culture that's forsaken the God-given gift of pastoral authority. And, and while we think we're probably above that because we have a high view of the church, I fear that, that our pride in reformed and seminary circles is our downfall. See, we're, we're so ready to take what our favorite megachurch pastor or blog or author or podcast or whatever as gospel truth while rejecting the only actual God-ordained authority in our spiritual life, our pastor's. So let's not abuse the good gifts of, of, of faithful men who lead large churches or of online resources and rob ourselves of the physical gift that God has given us week in and week out in our elders. Because when our life falls apart, when we lose our jobs, when we lose our family, when the doctor tells us something that we would never want to hear, your favorite megachurch pastor isn't hopping on a plane to come see you. Your favorite author is not going to sit in the hospital waiting room with you. But your pastor will. Church, do not forsake this. So, so let's love our pastors and be grateful for them even when they drag our sacred cows up to this pulpit and slay them. My concern is that the American church, us included, have allowed the the American ideology of individualism to be our new God. And let's just call this ideology what it is, self-idolatry with a new coat of paint called self-care. Instead of humbly submitting ourselves to the under-shepherd of Christ that's been given to us, we rely on our own interpretations of Scripture and this, this circle of confirmation biases around us to be our real guide for truth. 
But that's not the church. You can call it whatever you want. That's not the church. The church is what we see in Philippians 2. People who are of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So church, let us remember that we are a people who sit under authority, and that's a good thing. That's good. It's a gift. But I said that this passage also teaches us about how we are to interact in the context of the larger world. And I think that that remains true. I think especially if we look at the second audience of the letter, which would have been the church as a whole. Obviously, this letter is still not just for Titus because we've been talking about it for several weeks and we're talking about it this morning. And if we look at it in that context, we're shown how we, as God's people, ought to use our words when we interact with the world. 2 Corinthians 5 will say, Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, God's people, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, because that's true, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Do you, do you hear that, church? God has chosen to make his appeal to the watching world through you. And how does he make that appeal? With our words. From the beginning, he has been a speaking God. A God who wants to make himself known through his words. And so it should be no surprise to us that then he has chosen our words as the means by which the gospel goes out. Just like an ambassador that we see today on the TV or in our uh, national news. We don't come in our own authority or with our own message. But we come under the authority of the kingdom that has sent us out carrying the message of our sovereign king. And because that's true, we can go into the world with authority. Declaring these things to be true. This means that our thoughts and our opinions are not of primary importance. We are not ambassadors of our own kingdom or our own positions or even our own theology. But we are ambassadors of his kingdom. And it also means that church, we don't have to return with depression or anxiety when our message is rejected because ultimately we are not the ones being rejected. It is the message that we carry and the one who sent us the one whose name tag we wear. And so the same saving grace that you heard from another or that you read in God's word that called you into the life is the same word that we carry with authority into a lost and dying world. And church, this should give you hope because you are not convincing someone of their need for a savior. You are delivering a message that the Holy Spirit uses to awaken their hearts. So we, as Reformed people, should be the most zealous for the good work of evangelism and missions because we believe it will work. 
And our mission is this, to make God's appeal on his behalf. And what is that appeal? The same message that Peter preached in Acts 2. Repent and believe and you shall be saved. What good news that is. Why are we so afraid to say it? And it's not as if God needs our mouths to carry this message. Jesus tells the Pharisees that he could raise up rocks to tell his story. But God has lovingly chosen to include us, the least of these, in his mission of redemption. So church, this is why we can go into the world with conviction on gospel issues, authority on gospel issues, but it's also why we go into the world with charity on second and third tier doctrines that Matthew taught us about a few weeks ago. But it all, we must constantly remember that our purpose is a messenger of good news from a heavenly kingdom. And this message is never less than our words. But it is more than that. If you were here two weeks ago, Clay talked to us about how our lives serve as a powerful message of the gospel. Not just to the church, but also to the world who don't be fooled. They are watching. And I think that that's something that verses 1 and 2 reinforce. And that's going to be point number 2 today. The gospel teaches us how to live. The gospel teaches us how to live, verses 1 and 2. Our words have power, but that power is stolen when the way that we live betrays the words that we say. You've probably never heard of him, but pastor and author Jeff Robinson says in his book, Taming the Tongue, so there is a more fundamental issue here than our words, the heart. What controls the heart will direct the life. What controls the heart will control our words, and our words make visible what is invisible to the naked eye. So our words and our actions will lay bare for ourselves and the world if the truths we claim have actually penetrated our hearts. Over and over in Scripture, a Christian is someone who is changed, conformed to be more like Christ and less like they once were. Not simply by this white-knuckle Christianity that we talked about last week. We're trying to just force obedience in our lives. But because Christ controls our heart. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But these, these words and these works don't save us or make us right before God or justify us. But what they do what James says. They show us if our faith is real. Is it real? Or are we deceived? And being deceived. So we're going to actually read verses 1 and 2 again. And we're going to look like, we're going to see what a life looks like when Christ controls the heart. Verse 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle. And to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now some of these we can really get behind, right? Like, yeah, I do want... I love not having to fight, right, at home, at church, and in the world. I, you know, I, I like it when people are gentle with me, you know. Everybody likes a hug now and then. But some of these are a little controversial, right? I mean, be submissive to all rulers and authorities. Be obedient. 
right? Some of you are like, I haven't been told to be obedient since I was 12 years old. <laughs> and, and with commands like that, Paul is certainly not going to be on our number one ballot ticket, right? And we would never, ever say it, but we kind of scoff a little bit when we read these, right? But church, what does that say? If we claim Christ, but deny commands like these because they don't fit our narrative of what is best, what we're really saying is, God, how dare you tell me how to live? Don't be fooled. God will not be mocked. And sure, we'd never say that with our words, but how often do our lives scream it? So church, how dare we presume to know more than God? thinking that our circumstances really call for an asterisk rather than obedience. Just think about the circumstances of the church at this time if you think that our time is unique. Paul is not writing to a people who wield a whole lot of political power. There's no religious right or cultural Christianity in Rome. We're just a few years out from Nero ordering the execution of all Christians. So the very people that they're being commanded to obey barely tolerated their existence. You want to talk about persecution? And yet, what does Paul demand of them? Humble submission and courageous gospel proclamation. They are a pair. We cannot sell one and try to buy the other. And, and so many will say, well, that's just not a realistic part of this post-Christian society that we live in today. But I would argue that it becomes all the more important because our hope is not in the authority of some fleeting politician or some cultural clout that we have, but is in the king of kings and his authority. And it, yeah, it's going to seem foolish. Church growth experts are going to be like... But it pleases God that by the foolishness of men, he might achieve his ends. And for those of us in reform circles, we, we week in and week out will say we declare God's absolute sovereignty. But do we really believe that? Is that a theory or is it true? Because our obedience is an indicator if we've truly been changed in our hearts by these truths that we proclaim. If we believe that God is exhaustively sovereign, we can trust his good plan. Even for those that we don't like, that he is divinely appointed. And especially when we don't understand it. So in other words, church, let's let the doctrines of grace make us a people who love grace. And I know that this is a sharper criticism. But God is not ignorant. He included this because we need it. Because church, when we spurn the earthly authorities that God has placed over us, we deny his ultimate authority. We tell God that we could have done better and that he should be subservient to our desires. 
Let that be far from us. Forgive us. Let us trust in God's direction with humble faith in His good sovereignty, not our own or our political parties. Because a faith in His sovereignty will make us a people zealous for good works. Now, I don't think I need to say this, but of course we do not have to be commanded to follow a society that demands that we sin or a government that tries to force evil upon us. But what it does mean is that our leading foot is toward humility and grace and obedience. We are called to, I mean, look at our verses. We're called to look, seek good works to do. To be kind and gentle and to speak with love toward others and not hatred. That is a faithful ambassador of God. Not a keyboard warrior on a Facebook quote. I mean, look at our world. The lost are dying for someone to see them, to hear them, to love them. We have never as a society spent more money on talk therapy than the last two years. Why do you think that is? And how are we so lazy to not seek to inject some hope in that? Outsourcing to this garbage when we have the only cure for their sin and their death. So rather than being dragged, kicking and screaming with our days out of cultural Christianity, let's be a people who are salt and light with real love in a world of cheap substitutes and self-idolatry that tramples everyone else. There's some pretty obvious applications for this, but, but I'll give you two. Our online life and our political discourse. So let me ask you, if all someone knew about Christianity was your online life, would they be drawn to the Christ you claim or repulsed by him? Church, I, I don't, this isn't in my notes, but um, something that I, I'm doing for seminary is, is I'm working with an online platform. And so a lot, if you go to these websites where you're kind of searching on Google for like how to know more about Jesus and you click the chat, this is the organization that you're sent to. And I cannot tell you the, the brokenness. I mean, I, can't, I, I physically cannot do it every single day. My dad just killed himself. Uh, my wife left me. I'm thinking of killing myself. How could God still love me? Over and over and over. People are asking these questions. People don't know the gospel. We cannot assume it. Church, we have the answer. There should be no one in Louisville and there should be especially no one in our spheres of influence that have to go to some website to ask for help. You might be thinking, what is our church doing? What is God doing in our neighborhood, in my work? He sent you. And in our political discourse, 
rather than this closed-fisted, angry, defensive, we can be grace-filled and open-handed because this political reality, whatever that is for you, is not your ultimate hope. That's not going to save you. But you can trust with an open-handed faith that God's will is always done because His speaking is His doing. Church, if we start to seek caveats about who and where we can love, treat with kindness, show grace, or speak gently to, let's just cut to the chase and ask what we really mean. And just who is my neighbor, Jesus? Where does my, where does my neighborhood end? Please do not hear me coming to beat us down and leave us a feeling afraid to, to say or do anything. But do hear me say that Christ commands his people to be conformed to himself. We all know that we must stand up to a world in lost in darkness and be the voice of reason. But that responsibility does not resolve us of the equally important one. And the command that Jesus said the one marker of his people, the one thing that they will be known by is what? Their love. Does that sting? Church, when we fill our lives with hatred and with anger, we damage our Christian witness, clouding the very message that we are graced to be ambassadors of. In our hatred, online or otherwise, we deny fellow image bearers the dignity that they deserve. And we hate the God that they are made in the image of. So, like I said before, let us be salt and light, redeeming our words and our actions, whether online or in person. This reminds me of a story I heard once of um, a Sunday morning service. So, let's just say it's, it's, it's Christ Fellowship, and it was this morning, right? So, you guys get here, and we're led by Joe, and Clay starts praying, and, and I'm not here yet. And so, you know, Clay... He's like a Pentecostal when he gets up here, starts to pray, right? He can go for 20 minutes. So he's going, and I'm still not here, and he's like, I'm out of stuff. So he, he closes, and we do our next song, and then I'm still not here. And so, like, we're a church of grace. You give me five minutes, ten minutes, and then we, everybody starts looking at Jeff being like, when do we leave and keep our salvation, right? Like, and so finally, 20 minutes rolls by, and I land, and I get here, and I'm running up. I'm, I'm really sorry. We were on 64, and I got a flat tire. And I, and I look at me. I'm, it's going to take me a while to change a flat tire, right? And so, but I get it, and like I get the tire off, and as I'm pulling it off, the the new tire rolls out onto the road, and I'm like, oh, of course. So I go and get it. You know, the girls are in the car, and uh, wouldn't you know it? I grab that tire, and a semi turns the corner and just hits me, and it hurt like really bad. And, but I said, I got somewhere to be. So I, I gave him my insurance information. I put that new tire on and I drove up in here. So two things will happen. You're like, either this dude is lying or he's crazy. But either way, we need to get up out of here, right? Like, get, get the kids in the car. In an infinitely more significant way, church, when we are impacted by the gospel of Christ, how dare we think we can look the same?
The gospel is a wrecking ball that remakes our life. And if we don't look any different, we are a liar. And when we fail to live in a way that reflects verses one and two, we show that either we are a liar and we, Christ was never of us, or that we have been fooled by our flesh into living as we once were. And that's gonna be our, our next verse and our next point. The gospel teaches us who we were. The gospel teaches us who we were in verse three. So Paul here, I, I think, is masterfully reminding us what we've been saved from in verse three. And look at some of these traits. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, essentially buying every lie the world sold us, no matter what it cost, it was worth it. And while some might see Christianity as a list of rules, what we know is that the the very opposite is true. The ones who are truly in slavery are those chained to their sins and their desires and their pleasures, unable to do anything good. Carried along like wind-tossed waves in a storm. Filling their days with nothing but hatred of God and being hated. All the while vying to claim a throne that never belonged to them. So in essence, what we're being reminded of here is the painful reality that confronts all who live in this broken world. God is holy and we are not. In our sin nature, the corruption that each of us inherits at birth We are blinded to our need for God. And this this small crack of a vision that we have of his actual holiness, we live in rebellion to. The language of slavery here and in other parts of scripture is used to make the point that your will is not done no matter what you think. We are, as slaves, we're subjected to the will of the one who holds the whip. It reminds me of God's words to Cain in, verse, in Genesis 4, 7. It says to him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So we will rule over our sinful desires or they will rule us. But church, no one has done well. No one can be accepted. All of us have lived or are living a life of verse three in our passage today. And so, as, as John Owen would say, sin had killed us, leaving us a slave in chains to it. So where can we find Redemption. Can a murderer be redeemed because he opens an animal shelter? Can our works of righteousness absolve us from the past? No. And so what Paul is doing here is breaking our blindness to any false assumption that we could achieve salvation by works of the law or our own righteousness. There is no one righteous. All have gone astray. Jesus, too, had choice words for the Pharisees of his day who thought they could reach salvation by their own righteousness. He told them this, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside 
but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Church, that's the lost. That should break your heart. God forgive us of our apathy of it. But it also is a desperate reminder of our need for a Savior yesterday, today, and forever. Though for a time we might fool others or even ourselves, the reality that a whitewashed tomb holds a corpse will always find its way out. But, because this is almost a moment where the, the candle of hope starts to flicker in the midst of darkness, God invaded our whitewashed tomb with two things, goodness and loving kindness. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but uh, this is kind of down into verse 4. This, this radical act that brings life to dead hearts like yours and like mine. So today, if, if you feel the weight of your slavery and the chains to passions and desires, if you feel the shame of a disobedient and rebellious life or are beaten down by the cycle of hating and being hated, take heart. God has not abandoned us there. So whether for the first time or the millionth time, feel the sting and the condemnation of your sin. But don't stop there. If you stop there, then you've missed the gospel. Lift up your eyes and see the Son of Man crucified. He saved us. Not because of works of our righteousness or cleaning ourselves off and being presented worthy, but according to His own mercy. Church, do you see? And I want you to see something in verse 4. That term loving kindness. I can't, we can't say for definite, but, but I believe that Paul is referencing the Hebrew idea of hesed here. It's a word that speaks to his loyal love, his promise-keeping forever faithfulness for his own. It's a reminder of the truth that even when we showed ourselves to be, verse 3, these faithless enemies of God, he showed himself to be the God who keeps his promises is faithful and always loves his people. And that church saving work of God is going to give us our fourth and final point today. The gospel teaches us who we are and who we will be. This is from four to seven. The gospel teaches us who we are and who we will be. When we had no hope within ourselves, he saved us. If you remember last week, he drew near and appeared to us we could not motivate God we could not meet him halfway we could not repay him and yet according to his own mercy out of himself he chose to purify a people for his own possession and if you are in Christ today that is you the weight of all our sin, past, present, and future, is removed. The chains are unbound and placed on Christ. 
like Barabbas, we stood condemned, but Christ took our place. And how did he do that? Look at our text. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. In regeneration, God keeps his promise of Ezekiel 36, 26, saying, And I, being God, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Regeneration is the saving work of God that breathes new life into his people. It rips out the dead heart of stone that is enslaved to passions and pleasures and gives us a new heart that cherishes and longs for Christ alone. This doctrine is one that gets overlooked for the other ones. But it's so important because it's the only way that we can know that God's people will ultimately be like him. Because their hearts beat for him. This is the moment when we are hit by the truck of grace. And after this instance, we aren't drip-fed the Holy Spirit, giving us just enough to kite us along and stumble through this life. But how is the Holy Spirit bestowed on us? Look, poured out on us richly. The treasuries of heaven are emptied onto us, church. Do you see the, the, the difference? This is the king who asks for our obedience. This ocean of grace covering all our sin, past, present, and future, making us new, no longer slaves to sin or stained by its crimson blood. So going back to our point for this section, who does the gospel say we are? Redeemed sinners. Brought to life by the regenerating work of Christ. Reconciled to God by the merciful work of and a people adopted into his family, awaiting an eternal inheritance. That's what we see in verse 7. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is just the foretaste. But it's not even as if we have to wait with this idea of an inheritance. We're given a down payment today. And that down payment is the Holy Spirit. Church, we can know that one day all the promises of Scripture will be ours because we rest in the sovereign, regenerating, and renewing work of God. Christ is currently being formed in us, but one day that work will be complete and the resurrection that he has earned, the first fruit of Christ, will be bestowed to us. do we need from God but I started off this morning telling us that this passage gave us a practical uh, kind of picture of the horizontal application of the gospel and I think that that remains true because church we can never truly know how we ought to live and why we ought to live that way until we see how great a salvation we have and how great a salvation it is See, these commands to live in the world with courageous gospel proclamation, with uh, this 
excuse me, this humble submission and love toward others, we will never grasp that until the, the truth of the gospel has taken hold of us and controls our hearts. When we understand who we were, who we are now because of his work, and who we will be because of his work alone, we can't help but look like verses 1 and 2. So church, remember who we were before Christ redeemed us. Slaves to sin until the God of all mercy himself reached down into that whitewashed tomb and said, let there be light. Just stole my thunder this morning. We can sympathize with a lost and dying world because we know what it's like. We can speak with authority because we know the way. And evangelism is one beggar telling another where to find food. We can live with love toward a sinful world because the people in it are made by Christ and for Him. Church, Christ demonstrated His love. Now, while we were still sinners, he died for us. Let us not turn a blind eye to the sinners around us. And ultimately, remember that our goal is to be ambassadors of the God who saved us according to his mercy alone. As we start to wind down for this morning, I I want us to remember the cautionary tale of Jonah. If you were here um, before the new year, we talked about it some. But he lived in Israel when he was called to preach to the Assyrians. So Nineveh is the capital of Assyria at the time. And let's be honest, these people were the worst. Like they were just terrible. And pretty much they, they stood for everything that God hated and they reveled in it. And the entire world was up against them. So when Jonah was called to preach to them, he didn't really flee because he wasn't familiar with the area or was afraid. He fled because he didn't want them to hear his words. Because he hated them. They were beneath God's love and they were certainly beneath Jonah's time. But when Jonah finally got around to preaching to them, kind of busting out a seven, eight word sermon that just gave them a scathing rebuke and a promise of destruction... What happened? These people beneath God's love heard and believed. They repented and they were saved. God, not according to their works done by righteousness, but according to his own mercy, he saved them. And what does Jonah say? How dare. They don't deserve it. We deserve it. How dare you? And I think that we all know that part of the story. But do you want to know a a prophet who stayed in Israel during Jonah's time? Hosea. See, while Jonah and most of God's people were busy reveling in their sin and what can only be described as enthusiastic rebellion... They could not bear to stomach the sins of those around them. Presuming God's grace over their sins and refusing to offer it to a lost and dying world that they were called to be a kingdom of priests to. 
if I start to rename Nineveh, I think we all get the point. Church, let's not be a Jonah limiting God's grace to those who just sin like us. But believing that his sovereign work will be done. The same gospel that called you and me into life is the same gospel that will save sinners. So let's be a people who live and speak in our homes and our church and our world with a memory of who we were but a knowledge of the God who saved us and who we are now and who one day we will be. Because God doesn't care what degree you have. He doesn't really care much how many creeds you know or how much theology you can teach. What he does care about is this. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Pray with me. Father, I ask that you would renew in us an awe-filled vision of your mercy and your grace, Lord. Remind us of the depth of our depravity and our sin as a story for grace to recall that we would be empowered to go and tell a lost and dying world that you are willing to send your son to die in our place. Lord, I I pray that you would remind us of the Spirit's work in our life and of the mission that we have to make your name known and, and glorified wherever we go. Let us not be poisoned by the flesh, confused and living as though we were lost, but but live as light in the darkness with, with words and actions that reveal a heart controlled by Christ. When we fail, Lord, I pray we flee to the rock of ages that will not move and remember your finished work. Make us aware of opportunities to be faithful ambassadors have courageous authority but in all these things Lord let Christ alone be lifted high let his love be poured out through us and let his merciful person and work be a model for us all it is in the name of this Christ we pray Amen